You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at RedeemerBibleChurch.com. Please take your copy of the scriptures and turn to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. If you've been with us through this series, your Bible may just fall open. To Matthew 6. Right now, I have a 6-year-old, an 8-year-old, a 12-year-old, and a 16-year-old living in my house. If you're visiting, those are my children. Now, what's interesting, and and I'm sure not at all surprising, is that the 12- and 16-year-old aren't nearly as dependent on Karen and me as the 6- and 8-year-old are. Though, to be perfectly transparent, sometimes they seem like they are. But the reality is that as children grow older, they become more aware of who they are. They mature physically and cognitively. And as that happens, they become more and more independent. They don't need mom and dad like they did when they were small children. And then at some point, under normal conditions, children reach 18, or in some cases, 20, or 25, and they move out and begin to fend for themselves. In a very real sense, they become totally independent of their parents. Brothers and sisters, do you realize that the exact opposite is true in the Christian life. As we mature in our faith, we don't become more independent of God. No, as we experience Christian growth, we realize more and more just how utterly and totally dependent on God we actually are. In fact, Job reminds us that we are dependent on God for something as basic as breathing, Job 12, verse 10, in his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. Over the last three weeks, as we've lingered in the Lord's Prayer, we have seen our profound need for God. God is the source of all things, and without him we have nothing, which means that we are totally dependent on God which also happens to be what defines us as a church. We are people desperate for God. This morning, our study will focus on Matthew chapter 6, verses 11 through 15, but let's take a moment, as we've done the last few weeks, to read the Lord's Prayer out loud together. We'll begin in verse 9, go through verse 13. Please read with me. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil." We began by focusing our attention on the foundation and the fuel for prayer. We saw how the text points us to the character of God. 
This is where it all begins with the omniscience of God, the immortality of God, the fatherhood of God, and the holiness of God. Friends, the reality of who God is invites us to pray humbly and honestly. God knows us infinitely and loves us eternally. Therefore, we pray boldly. Upon this foundation, we then sought over the last two weeks to understand what exactly we are praying when we ask for God's kingdom to come. We are praying for at least these four things. That the gospel will be preached boldly, that the gospel will be displayed publicly, that Jesus Christ will be worshipped globally, that ultimately God will reign perfectly. So it's with all of this in mind that we come to verse 11. In fact, you'll notice the transition. In verses 9 and 10, our primary concern is God's glory, God's reign, and God's will. Our attention is directed entirely Godward. Now, in light of the majesty and the activity of God, we give thought to our own needs and the needs of others. This only makes sense, doesn't it? It's only in reference to God that we can truly understand who we are and what we really need. In verses 11 through 15, we are confronted with our desperate need for God. We are dependent on him for provision, for pardon, and for protection. For provision, for pardon, and for protection, which if you think about it, is a way of saying that we need God in every way and for everything. In fact, Martin Lloyd-Jones argues that in these three simple petitions, quote, all our greatest needs are summed up. All our greatest needs are summed up. Lloyd-Jones describes precisely what we'll find in our study this morning. First, we are dependent on God for his provision. Verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. At first glance, this petition seems quite simple, and of course, in a sense, it is. This is why Christians throughout the ages have offered thanks for their food. It's, it's a simple way of acknowledging God's provision. We offer him thanks because we believe that what sits at the center of our table is a gift from his hand. In fact, thanking God for our food points to the greater reality of of what we believe, that everything we have is from God's hand. James reminds us, in James chapter 1, verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthian believers in the midst of their division and difficulty, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Brothers and sisters, it is so easy for us to drift into a sort of spiritual slumber where first we stop acknowledging God's loving provision, but then over time we subtly begin to think that we have what we do because of what we've done. 
we might find ourselves thinking or saying something like this. I have all these things because I've done this and this and this and I've avoided doing that and that and that. Now, of course, we are called to live responsibly. We should all work hard and invest wisely and prepare intentionally. But we also need to be careful that we don't begin to think in a very dangerous way. We must guard our hearts so that we don't begin to shift from humility and gratitude for God's good gifts to a sense of arrogant entitlement. This is what I deserve based on what I've done. It would be easy for us to do this, wouldn't it? Every good and perfect gift comes from above, sure. But, but I've put in the time. And I've made the good decisions. And, and I've worked long hours to advance my career. And now I deserve to enjoy what I have earned. Brothers and sisters, it is a dangerous thing to forget the sovereignty of God. Because when we forget that he alone is sovereign, we will no longer be marked by humble gratitude for all that God has given to us, and we will open ourselves up to a whole host of spiritual dangers. Let me illustrate this for you, but before I do that, consider again the careful choice of words in the two texts I read just a minute ago. Every, every good gift comes from above, coming down from the Father. And then what do you have that you did not receive? And the implied and obvious answer is, well, nothing. So once again, friends, be careful. A low view of God will lead to an exalted and puffed up view of yourself, which will in turn lead to an idolatrous view of your stuff. When your position and your possessions are viewed primarily as a result of your abilities, your skill and your effort, then you will cherish, protect, and give inordinate time and energy to the preservation and cultivation of your stuff. Why? Because your possessions, your achievements, will have become your identity. You'll look at what you have collected and what you have accomplished, and it will give you your sense of worth and meaning and value. But here's the flip side. A high view of God, as the giver of all things, will lead to an accurate view of yourself as an undeserving recipient of God's grace in 10 million different ways. And this, in turn, will lead you to view your possessions and your achievements as a means of enjoying God and serving God you will acknowledge him as the giver and you will hold all that you have received from him with open hands. You will not boast in what you have, 
because ultimately it's all a gift from God anyway. God in his grace has given you everything, and if he so chooses with one word, he could take it all away. Now, when we pray and we ask God for our daily bread, it is a general acknowledgement of God's sovereignty and our frailty. It's an admission that we need God. But listen, Jesus is also making a very specific point here. This goes beyond general acknowledgement of things that are true. Look again at verse 1. Give us this day our daily bread. The word translated daily is a word that is only found here. And it conveys a very important truth. It carries with it this thought. For the coming day. So here's what Jesus is saying. When you pray, Father, give us this day our daily bread. If you are praying that prayer in the morning, then you are asking simply for the food and provision you need for the rest of that day. If you were to pray this prayer at night, you'd be asking for enough food and provision for the next day. In other words, this is not... This is not a vague prayer for God to provide all the food that you will ever need. No, it's very specific. Father, give us what we need today. And you might be thinking, Jason, why, why is that important? Well, listen to what Henry Morris writes. And I think as soon as you hear this, you'll say, yeah, that makes sense. I know I've done that. This prayer encourages a continuing dependence on God. This is not a situation in which the disciple asks God for a supply for a lengthy period after which he can go on for some time in forgetfulness of God. Brothers and sisters, please get this. As adopted children of the living God, we should be so aware of our utter dependence on God that we are quick to pray, God, I need you today. I can't make it through this day without you. I need you to provide today. This keeps us in a state of ongoing dependence on God. And this is what it emphasizes. This is where we begin to realize that this request is really about more than food, isn't it? Without God's grace and mercy every day, we would all be undone. This is, this is a gracious reminder of just how desperate we are for God. Right? This emphasizes how true the song that we just sang earlier is, I need you, oh, I need you, every hour, I need you. So here's what happens to many of us far too often. We go throughout our days and we seem to have everything we need. Right, this is one of the dangers, the potential dangers in, in having a lot of being part of an affluent society. We go throughout our days and we, we seem 
to have everything we need. So we almost imperceptibly begin to disconnect God from normal daily life. We need him in crisis, and we thank him when he provides something that's out of the ordinary, but mostly we forget about him during the uneventful seasons of life. Jesus is reminding us here that without the kind and faithful provision of God, you and I wouldn't even have food to put on our tables today. I think there's both an encouragement and a warning here. The encouragement is to remember that God provides. He loves to provide for his children. In fact, Jesus says this in the very next chapter, Matthew chapter 7, verses 9 through 11. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? This is the heart of God. Friends, this is an encouragement to deep gratitude for the goodness and love of your heavenly Father seen every single day in something as simple as the food on your table. But there's also a warning. A warning against calloused thanklessness and sinful self-sufficiency. Don Carson writes, our ingratitude is an insult to God. Thanklessness is an affront to him. We have taken his gifts for granted, and then when they begin to dry up, we complain and call into question the very existence of this benevolent God. I read that, and my response was guilty. When we ask our Father for our daily bread, we are acknowledging our total dependence on him, and we are acting in faith, believing that he is exceedingly good. This brings us to point number two. First, we are dependent on God for his provision, verse 11. Now, look with me at verse 12. We are dependent on God for his pardon. Verse 12, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. It's important to note initially that this is the only petition that is singled out for further comment. So Jesus adds what we find in verses 14 and 15. Now this is connected to verse 12. So let me read 12, then 14 and 15, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. 
What Jesus has in view here is not, just to be clear, because it could be confusing for some, what Jesus has in view here is not financial debt, but sin. Debt is simply a metaphor for offenses which need to be forgiven. In fact, remember that we are bringing this petition to God and we are asking for his forgiveness for the debt we have against him. Friends, what is the great debt we bear before God? It is our sin. Therefore, our need is forgiveness. So there is certainly a straightforward reminder here that God alone can forgive our greatest debt. It is only through Jesus' death and resurrection that, that anyone, anywhere, can be forgiven by God. Now, as we look carefully at these three verses, there are several different directions we could go in seeking to understand what Jesus is explaining. Let me try first to encapsulate his main point. Simply put, Jesus is teaching us that forgiveness is reciprocal. Forgiveness is reciprocal. The one who's been forgiven must forgive. So in verse 12, we ask God to forgive our sin debt against him, for he alone can forgive us. But we could easily get confused because it almost seems as if Jesus is saying that God will only forgive us if we forgive those who have sinned against us. But wouldn't, the, wouldn't that be salvation on the basis of works? We forgive so that God will forgive us. If I do these good things, maybe God will forgive me. Well, in my attempt to explain this as clearly as possible, turn with me to Matthew 18. Matthew 18. Verses 23 through 25, Jesus offers a parable that will help us understand his main point. Back here in Matthew chapter 6. Matthew 18, let's begin in verse 21. <clears throat> Please follow along as I read. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Verse 23, therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. 
When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. I hope you can see Jesus' point more clearly here, especially in verse 32 and following. Look at it again. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? The emphasis in both these texts, Matthew 6 and Matthew 18, is not on the order of forgiveness, but on the attitude of forgiveness. Friends, if you have experienced the forgiveness of God in Jesus Christ, if you have embraced the gospel, believing in Christ, believing that through Christ, God has canceled your eternal debt by an act of sheer grace and not as a result of work that you have done. If you say that you have received God's infinite love and eternal forgiveness in Christ, and yet you're unwilling to forgive those who sin against you, well, then you need to wrestle with a very serious question. Again, Don Carson writes, there is no forgiveness for this one who does not forgive. How could it be otherwise? His unforgiving spirit bears strong witness to the fact that he has never repented. Henry Morris adds, Jesus is saying that to fail to forgive others is to demonstrate that one has not felt the saving touch of God. Friends, an undeniable mark of authentic Christianity is a constant attitude and consistent posture of forgiveness. Abiding resentment, ongoing grudges, and growing bitterness are satanic and soul-destroying. But according to the word of God, forgiveness is freeing. It's joy-deepening. And it's life-giving. We could rephrase Matthew 6, 12 this way. Father, forgive us our sin as we are consistently and lovingly forgiving those who sin against us. Brothers and sisters, our confidence in the pardon that Christ has secured for us will only deepen as we offer forgiveness to those who have sinned against us. Now, I know 
that this is no easy task. And forgiveness doesn't always mean that everything returns to normal. There are real life consequences for sin. But hear me, what Jesus is telling us here isn't supposed to be easy. It's meant to expose our desperate need for God and for his grace. This is why we pray. We beg God for help. We ask him for grace. We ask him for strength. Would you do in me what feels like it's impossible to forgive that person? And as you pray that, as you long for that, the promises of the gospel, the reality of your own forgiveness just wash over you and begin to shape the way you respond to others. This brings us to our final point, number three. We are dependent on God for his provision, for his pardon. And finally, verse 13, we are dependent on God for his protection. Verse 13, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. What an important prayer. I've talked to people before who have struggled with this verse. Why would we be asking God to not lead us into temptation? Doesn't James say in chapter 1, verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. If God doesn't tempt anyone, why would we need to ask him not to lead us into temptation? I think Jesus is stating this petition in such a way that he's emphasizing, again, our utter dependence on God in the face of constant temptation. In other words, it's not, listen, it's not that God wants to lead us into temptation and so we're asking him not to. But rather, temptation is always present, and the only way of avoiding it is for God to graciously and sovereignly intervene and to keep us from it. Right? So, so temptation is everywhere. We pray this, asking God, could you sovereignly, graciously intervene and keep me from temptation? Friends, this is a plea for God's protection. Remember that we're living as citizens of God's kingdom in a world where sin and wickedness is everywhere. And yet God does not want his children to adopt some kind of monastic lifestyle. He doesn't want us living in caves, terrified of any contact with sin or sinners. In fact, that wouldn't solve the problem, would it? We've been told in this sermon the problem is our own hearts. Now, God wants us in the world, brothers and sisters, as salt and light involved in our communities, building redemptive relationships, publicly declaring the infinite value of Jesus. God has called us to take the gospel to those who need it most. And if we do this, we will face temptation from within and from without constantly. And our only hope our only hope for resisting temptation rests in God's abundant mercy. He 
must deliver us from evil. So we're asking God to do what only he can do. Now we pray often when we are tempted, but how often do we pray that God would keep us even from being tempted? Clearly this kind of an attitude requires that we take sin seriously, that we, we believe sin is dangerous and destructive, that we're not dabbling in or entertaining wickedness, you see, we will never cry out to God to keep us from temptation if we are regularly inviting temptation into our lives by the choices we make and the activities we engage in. That wouldn't make any sense at all. I'm gonna pursue temptation and pray that God would keep me from temptation. If Jesus Christ himself it's telling us to pray that God would keep us from temptation, then that should tell us something about the seriousness and the accessibility of sin. It's everywhere, and it destroys. Now again, we are not called to hide away, but we are called to arm ourselves, to guard our hearts, to saturate our minds with the truth of God's word and to help each other out as members of the same faith family, to be on guard, to beg God for his protection. John Piper powerfully reminds us the greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison but apple pie. It is not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but endless nibbling at the table of the world. Brothers and sisters, we need God's protection, and so we pray for it. And I would suggest that we don't simply need to pray for God's protection personally, but we also need to be praying for each other. This is one of your elders' most regular prayers for this church, that we would be marked by personal, heartfelt, loving prayer for each other. In closing, let me draw your attention to one final thought. When we consider the second part of our Lord's Prayer, what we've studied this morning, where does this lead us? When we think deeply about God's provision, his pardon, and his protection, we are led to consider everything this table represents. The person and work of Jesus Christ. God doesn't just give us daily bread, but he gave us the bread of life, his son, Jesus. God doesn't simply forgive us our trespasses, but he has canceled our eternal sin debt through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Friends, God doesn't just protect us from sin and temptation, but he is sovereignly working in this very moment to keep us faithful until the end. And this great saving work is accomplished, how? 
through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus. This text doesn't point us to strategies. It points us to a savior. This is why Paul says about the Lord's table, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Listen, the Lord's prayer invites us to consider the gospel and the Lord's table preaches that gospel to us. The Lord's prayer reminds us that we are desperate for God. The Lord's table reminds us that God will not turn a deaf ear to our cries. In fact, he has answered. When we partake of the broken body and shed blood of Jesus, we ought to have these words ringing in our ears. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? This includes our daily bread, the forgiveness of our debts, and deliverance from evil. So let's pray and prepare our hearts for this table.